Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Successfully Unemployed Show. I'm Dustin Heiner, and I'm here to help you learn how to quit that J-O-B, that just overbroke job, by having businesses, by having side hustles, being a freelancer, investor, doing whatever it takes. And there are so many ways to actually retire early, quit working for somebody else, And today, we're going to be talking to an expert who actually started a car dealership and then went into more dealerships and is now a successful business owner with many car dealerships. Now, I know that might seem crazy to us, but listen to the story. You can see that you can absolutely do this too. All right, let's do this. Welcome to the Successfully Unemployed Show, the place where ordinary people become extraordinary by finding the path to financial freedom through entrepreneurship, side hustles, and passive income. We've already blazed the path, showing you how to retire early and have financial independence so you will never work for someone else again. And now, here's your host, Dustin Heiner. All right. Now, thinking about starting your own car dealership sounds amazingly, fantastically hard. And today we're going to be learning all about how my guest actually did this. Now, I want to tell you a quick story. So I was in Nashville, Tennessee last week for a podcasting conference. You guys know I love podcasting. It's super amazing to be able to meet so many great people and share it out with the world. I also have another podcast called Master Passive Income, where I teach how to invest in real estate rental properties. And a bunch of us from the podcasting conference decided to go to get some dinner and have a little meetup where we have some dinner and hang out together. And so I take off a little early to get over to the restaurant. And as I'm pulling up, I get out of the car and I'm across the street from the restaurant. And as I start walking across the street to go to the restaurant, there is a person that is, look at me, dead set in the eyes, like just trained, fixed on me and started walking towards me. And I'm looking around like, what's what's going on? And keeps walking exactly like beeline right towards me. And I'm wondering who is this person? And then all of a sudden he opens his arms like he's going to give me a big hug, gets really close to me. And I realize, oh my goodness, this is my student, Benjamin. Now you guys know I coach real estate. I teach people how to invest in rental properties, but I had no idea that one of my best students is actually living in Nashville. And it just so happens he was literally at the exact same restaurant at the exact same time. He and his wife and his dog, I got to meet them and I got to hang out with them and talk to them for 30 minutes. And I literally had no idea that he even lived in that city, let alone we actually meet at the exact same restaurant. And it was like, oh, like a whirlwind. And we started talking about everything. And it turns out he now has 22 units, making him $5,000 a month in passive income. After only working with me for 18 months, he now has 22 units, making $5,000 or more in passive income. Super amazing. Such a blessing to be able to hang out with him. It was just amazing to be able to talk with somebody that I've been working with online, you know, coaching and see him in real life. And he's doing a fantastic job investing. And I actually want you to start investing as well. I want to give you my real estate investing course absolutely for free. Text the word rental, R-E-N-T-A-L to 33777. Rental to 33777. I will give you my free real estate investing course showing you how to do it. Now today, we're going to be talking with Jeff Morrill, who actually has his own Subaru dealerships, I think a couple of them, and he makes a ton of money and he provides lots of jobs and he is successfully unemployed. All right, let's start the show. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Successfully Unemployed Show. Thank you. I'm excited to join you today. So Jeff, let's jump right into it. How do you make money to provide for yourself and your family 
without working that dead-end J-O-B, that just overbroke job. So my brother and I moved up from our native Virginia in 1998 to buy a bankrupt Subaru dealership south of Boston, Massachusetts. We renamed it Planet Subaru. And what I did over the uh, following 20 years is that we we hired some really great people and we had our heart broken with some not-so-great hires. And we worked really hard and we, we assembled... Uh, a team of people that could run that business and the other businesses that we bought along along the years as the years went on, and and those people run the businesses and we check on them remotely. I now live in Charlottesville, Virginia, so I fly back from time to time just to meet everybody. I, I like to; it's really important to me to to know everybody that's on the team. So the new people, I make sure I go find them and sit down with them for a while. So that's the way I do it, and it's uh, a great way to do it if you can find a, a bankrupt car dealership to buy. But there are a lot of other ways to do it too. And we can talk about some of the lessons I learned that might be applicable to all the people who don't want to be car dealers. Man, so many questions are flooding into my brain. But let's start from the beginning. So thinking of myself going to buy a car dealership, that sounds like a lot of money. Inventory, buildings, like l- literally everything. My goodness, how did you go from, I'm going to move with my brother and buy this, and then eventually being able to literally have your business take care of you and yourself and obviously run it well. But talk to us about getting started and then making that leap to say, we're going to do it and then jumping all in. So let's start with my graduation from college when I couldn't find a job in the political world, which is the one that I had studied and had imagined uh, wanting to join maybe as a camp, you know, running campaigns or that kind of thing. Couldn't find that job. So the man that I had volunteered with, who was the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia at the time, I was in college, did a semester driving him around the state. I called him and said, hey, I can't find a job. Can you help me out? He's like, well, my Lieutenant Governor office has a three-person staff and they're all longtime people. But if you want to work at my Volvo dealership in the service department, we'll be happy to hire you and you can you can learn a new trade and and then maybe you can see what happens from there. So it turns out that my ambition was to eventually get back into politics, but I enjoyed it so much that I ended up, um, I was there for four years. And over that time, I had acquired those skills and started building a network of the, the people that I would need to, to actually buy a store on my own. And, and this is the part I want to highlight in this answer. I think the most important thing that I did is that I was learning about a particular industry and, and I started moving in the direction of greater responsibility in that industry. I think looking back on it, it probably would have been inadvisable for me to spend four years in a car dealership as I did and then try to start a bakery because there were all sorts of skills and connections that I wouldn't have had. But because I was already in the car business, it was a very natural transition to owning my own. And you can imagine, let me just replace the car business with, uh, let's say, a plumber who is uh, supervising a, a crew of plumbers working for somebody else. That person has the skills. They understand what the job involves. And maybe they haven't developed a lot of management techniques. They don't have a ton of financing, but they're certainly in a good position to evolve their careers in that direction of owning their own plumbing firm. And that's exactly what I did. The way we found that bankrupt Subaru dealership is I, I, there's a publication called Automotive News. And it has a classified section in the back. People list their, their dealerships. And, and still, to, the publication exists to this day. The, the stores are a lot more expensive than they used to be. But you can still do the same thing. So I just started making phone calls. 
And and uh, maybe that illustrates one one principle that I'll close out the answer with. That I think it's important that if you have a dream, you should be working towards it somehow. And that doesn't mean you need um, you know if there's if you want to be a writer, for instance, then you should probably be writing a little bit every day. And in my case, I wanted to be I wanted to own my own business, so I started making phone calls to people who are selling their businesses to try to find one I could buy. That is awesome, and you took advantage of where you were currently working, getting knowledge and education, and you're also getting paid to get an education. If you think about it, like we go to college, we spent fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars or more getting a college piece of paper where they're just teaching you a bunch of general stuff, and then you got to work and learn on the job, which is not necessarily all that bad. I personally believe that there are so many other ways to make money than going to college and getting a piece of paper and having other people literally teach you. Like, I'll give you an example. I would absolutely pay Warren Buffett to let me work for him, like work in his office, just be around. I would pay money to do that because that's that education of uh, being around him, the experience would be so much more than me paying to go to some college where they, somebody's teaching. So that is terrific. You took advantage of the situation we're at. And the hard part though, is buying a car dealership, the barrier to entry is so much higher than, okay, I'm gonna start a carpet cleaning business and I have a carpet, or I'm gonna go work for a carpet cleaning company. I'm cleaning carpets. And then all I gotta do is literally buy my own little van. It's probably gonna cost, I don't know, five, 10, $15,000 at most. And then start putting flyers out and start you know, knocking on doors and stuff like that. There's not that hard. The barrier to entry is very small. Carpet cleaning, yard maintenance, all that sort of stuff. But buying a, a car dealership, how was it, like what got you over that hurdle to say, this barrier to entry is like, it's not a big deal to me. I want to do this. I'm gonna make it happen. Like how did, like getting that in your head, it just, it's, it seems like that's just a really daunting task to take. It was, and I, it, even at the time, it, it wouldn't have been an opportunity that was available to everybody. And so I don't wanna, overstate that was, this was some kind of rags to riches tale. We didn't have a lot of money, my brother and I at the time, and it's not like our parents gave us the business. So we had to go out and, and find it and build it and, and capitalize it ourselves. But I'll tell you, in all candor, we, we needed about $600,000 to open it up. And we got to, we had about 200 of that going in, my brother and I, and we had an uncle that lent us 200 and my dad lent us 200. And realistically, I think without the help of the family capital, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But that isn't to say that we wouldn't have eventually gotten to it. Because one of the things we could have afforded to do if we didn't have that family capital available, we could have done our own used car lot. So we ended up with a very modest franchise dealership. You know, we, we swang for the fences and, and actually hit the ball out over the fence. But but if that had failed, there were other ways to get into the car business and other ways to eventually get to a franchise car dealership with a few more steps in the middle. And I guess that's the, the thing that I would, would encourage entrepreneurs to think about is that their dream might not be achievable in a single step like it was for us. Although I don't even know if it was a single step for us because we always imagined that that dealership uh, was was only the the first part of a, a larger entrepreneurial enterprise because in 1998 Subaru was not a particularly desirable brand. It was um, it was a producer of very good cars. It's just that the secret wasn't out. It's now in the New England states where we sell. It's now the third best selling brand. So so we've been helped by a, just a lucky rising of the tide for us. But at the time when we bought it, it was. Um, not the kind of thing that you would have expected would have provided a living for two families 
for the rest of our lives. It was just our foot in the door to then maybe buy a Honda store or a Toyota store, which at the time were were um, more profitable and, and of course more expensive too. But but those are the stores that obviously would have provided, uh, according to our understanding at the time, a, you know a, a really lifetime kind of income. It turns out that the Subaru store did buy that, although we did buy another. Uh, Jeep dealership, another dealership that sells uh, Chrysler's Dodge's Jeeps and Rams later. And then, of course, we've been in in other businesses, too. That's great. Now, a big question comes to my mind. You bought a underperforming or a bankrupt car dealership, something that was basically not making money. And you had to turn that around and put $600,000 of your family's money and your money into something not knowing that you can actually turn it around. Like, how did you know that I can buy this even though it's not performing well? Did you look to see what they were doing wrong and figure out how to do it right? Or did you also have that experience of that person that you were working for? Like, how did you know that you can actually turn this business around? Because putting $600,000 into a business that's losing money, there might be some like something wrong with it, but you decided to go in and do it anyways. How did you figure that out? Yeah, I think that's the importance of of having the industry knowledge in the business that you want to open. So remember, I was already doing this and my final job uh, of the at the fourth year at the Volvo dealership where I was working, I'd, I'd been promoted to a what we called capital development, which was like building new stores for the small auto group. And I had built a, a Land Rover dealership for the dealer group. I mean, it wasn't any of my money. That was just my job to take their money and get all the town approvals and, and take care of all that. So I had some understanding because I'd already done it. And, and I think it would be very, as I said before, very dangerous for someone who didn't have that experience to push that many poker chips into the middle of the table. But if you're an experienced poker player and you've got a hand that looks pretty good, which I thought it was, then, then that was, that was really all the, all the courage we needed. I'll point out though, that we also understood, my brother and I did that, that, uh, if we lost the 200 that we brought in, I mean, that would, that'd be a a heartbreaker, but it, there was no debt associated with that. The 400 in debt, if we lost it all and the business failed, we knew we could make that back. I was only 26 when we, when we started the business, my brother was 31. So we would have had a lifetime to pay it back. And, and it would be a mistake, I think, to be so afraid of losing money that you don't, you don't occasionally roll the dice on your own ability to get the job done. Nothing venture, nothing gained. I mean, really what it comes down to is if you don't actually try it, then you don't know if you're actually going to get it. And so you're rewarded by your hard work. And I love the idea that you took your job that you had. You didn't know you're going to be doing this, you know, being a car dealer. Um, but you took the job that you had where you actually got experience and got paid to get experience and then use that to then start an entire business. Now, what's a lo- I, I think is amazing. I wish I was in the car business. It's or at least it seems like it would be great because I know. So I live in Arizona in Phoenix, and Larry Miller is a big guy up in Utah, up and down here in Phoenix. And there's Larry Miller, like literally, sh- like every single type of car that's made, he has his own shop. It sounds like is that something that if you have a car dealership, you can continually move forward in getting to other. Uh, dealerships, other car, and then branch out to other businesses, which I want to get to other businesses and how to branch out and how to manage many businesses at one time. But it seems like that's the process. So you just keep growing, just keep redoing that formula over and over again. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what the Larry Miller group does. I think they're up to like 50 stores, something like that out there. I mean, it's, they have a, an empire 
And sure do. the way you do it is you start with one and then, you know, you, you buy the second and then you have two and you use the cash flow from that. And then you have more team members that you can u- use to, to, um, to seed the third one. And my brother and I decided that, that two was enough for us. It's certainly the pattern that a lot of dealers will use the cash flow they have to buy more. We really weren't interested in doing that because the first two took so much out of us. I think there are some, I, I meet car dealers and other, other business owners, uh, even captains of industry who seem to thrive. They eat the stress for breakfast and all the lawsuits don't bother them. And losing key people, they just shrug it off. I don't know. They they seem to have a almost like a um, a uh, force field around them that that protects them from all the pain. And I just never had that force field. And you know, I worked really hard. You know, for ten years, probably six or seven day weeks. And and um, you know, I, just so many examples. You know, you you'd take an entry level person and and over the, the course of years develop that person. Let's say into a service manager. And then, you know, they'd fall in love and, and have to leave out of state to, to go follow the spouse or something. And it's like, oh, there's, you know, you just knew it was like, it wasn't just your time and your money that you had invested. It was your very life force. And I, I think that life force, uh, at least in my case, I don't know if this is generalizable to everybody, but it's, it's a finite resource. You know, there's just not endless supplies of that. And we did it a long time and, and we just got tired. And I think our, our mission, obviously, from the beginning, we wanted to be successfully unemployed. I mean, that was the idea. We didn't want to just work six and seven days a week. We weren't so addicted to work and the thrill of making money for its own sake that we just want to make a, a full life of that. We wanted to, uh, you know, we wanted to work hard and build a business and then use the the cash flow from that business to to help our family and also all the other families that depend on the companies and and even beyond that and I talk about this in in the book profit wise that that I wrote we want to develop the community too I mean we we have a, an ambition to to improve our little corner of the world and you need positive cash flow to do that so we need the businesses to do well but we just didn't want to spend our whole life building businesses I completely agree and I know I remember a quote a uh, long time ago that I heard this, but Rockefeller, J.D. Rockefeller, when he asked how much money is enough, he always just said a little bit more. And those type of personalities, they're out there. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just don't have that personality myself. Whereas if I did, I would literally just keep gro- growing and growing and growing where I would be able to like shrug off any of the problems and keep moving forward. I'm now at the point where I have enough money where we can live comfortably. I could play. I literally just got done playing golf. I just came home right from playing golf and to jump on the show because I got plenty of money and I don't really need to keep growing. I could if I wanted to. But the, the thought is, the reason why I'm saying that is my goal now is to serve more people. The more people that I serve, like even just having this podcast, Successfully Unemployed, and the YouTube channel, it's literally just to show people that they can change their lives. I feel so much better when I'm helping people, when people are changing lives. Like money's great, but it's not the end all be all. What's much better is if I leave a legacy to my family, love my wife, and then also leave a legacy, legacy of, uh, and serve other people. So I think I, I'm right there with you. I'm more, much more on that end where I could keep growing my real estate business, but I grow it little by little. I just don't need to keep growing it just because that's not my personality. But if some people are, there are great ways to do it. Now, I want to get to if you're building a business and like let's because you bought the business, which is great, but there's a whole nuance of actually running the business and doing it well, making it profitable. Obviously, we saw that it was underperforming or is bankrupt, turning it around. 
What would you say are some keys that we should look at into our business to make sure that we're either hiring the right people, making it profitable, or all the above? How can we have a good running business? I think that, uh, I mean, I discussed this in the book, but the first thing that business owners need to do, and it's surprising to me how few of them have done it, is what I call defining reality. And what I mean by defining reality is, is that you spend a little time asking yourself the question or a small team of your key people these questions. Who are we? Who do we want to be? What do we want to accomplish? What are the kind of people that we want to accomplish this work? What will we do and what will we not do? Those kinds of questions will give you some insight into what the whole point of the enterprise is. And and once you understand that, you're going to be in a much better position to hire people, for instance. And uh, let me just transition to, to how important I think that is. There's a reason why that chapter appears so early in my book is that I think that if you can perfect hiring early in the life cycle of your business, you will accelerate the success uh, tenfold. And, and I have my own mistakes to prove that, that it took us a long time to develop the system that we ended up with. And uh, we were punished financially and psychologically by our inability to identify really qualified people among all our applicants. And so I actually describe in, in some detail, one of the things you want to start with is a recruiting ad that reads like, um, like a salesperson wrote it rather than a bureaucrat because you want to you advertise all the special things about why someone would join you. And then once you, once you start having applicants come and visit you, you want to make sure you have a team of people prepared to properly evaluate them. And one of the ways we do that is we use scripts. And um, we, you can look at the scripts that we use every day in our businesses at my website, jeffmoral.com. And we ask the same questions of everyone so that we have a standard look across all the candidates we have for a position. And in formulating those questions, we, we took a look at the people that were succeeding in those positions already and said, how do we get people that are like the people we have succeeding? And if you standardize your hiring process in the way I describe it, um, took us 20 years to figure out exactly how to do it, but eventually we did. Then we see that the quality of the people we hire is so much, uh, so much better. And, and we have so, so much less turnover and um, our customers respond obviously better to the, the the people that are better suited to the positions that that we have. So, what are some key qualities that we should look for in hiring somebody? Because obviously, you developed this over many many years. We, if we were to jump that and say, you know what, I know I need to hire somebody, or at least maybe one or two people, but I don't want to have to go through all the problems that that Jeff did. What are some key qualities that characteristics that we should look for in the people that we hire? Well, let me give you a general recognition, a general recommendation before I tell you what we do. The general recommendation is is for someone in their particular business context, whatever industry someone is in, to think about the people they've hired and haven't worked out. And we actually track it with the reasons, usually a key reason, but there's sometimes more than one reason why they depart. And then we compare our hiring process to those reasons. And we say, all right, well, I'll give you an example. Let's, let's make this a little more concrete. So if we have people who don't get along well with others consistently, like we're having to ask people to leave or, or write them up often, or they quit because they just won't take our direction on interacting in a positive way with other people, then obviously we're missing some quality in our interview process. Somehow we're not getting at that. 
So we'll take a look at the questions we're asking and maybe add some questions that would address that. Uh, I'll give an example of one of those questions. It might be something like, tell me about an incident that you had a difference of opinion with your manager or a colleague at a previous position. Tell me how you handled it and who was right. <laughs> you know? And you'd be amazed. I mean, with that kind of question, the answers that you get. I mean, sometimes people give you the political answer because they they see where the question's going. But but oftentimes people are just very candid and, and they will share with you information that will indicate that they might not fit onto your team. But anyway, in our particular case, one of the things we're very focused on is conscientiousness. And the reason we are is because character is a big thing for us for obvious reasons. And it's very difficult to get at character. I mean, what's the question you're going to ask someone in an interview? Do you have good character? I mean, it's like, it's, it, it, don't waste your time with a question like that. It, it's not, uh, there's no signal value in the answer. Everybody but thinks they have good case, character. You'll very rarely ever find somebody not. Yeah, right. So we, we want to get at it in a different way. And what we found is that conscientiousness is a good proxy for character. If, if someone's conscientious, they're probably a really, there's a high likelihood that they're going to be the kind of person that you enjoy working with and is going to fulfill his or her commitments to you and to customers. And what I mean by conscientiousness is, um, and it's very important, let's say in automotive sales, this is an industry that's famous for not being, for salespeople not being able to return a phone call. So we want to make sure that any of the salespeople that we hire, that they're, they're organized enough and have the, the concern and the passion for making sure that they don't let people down. And we don't want people on our team that can't return a phone call. So we actually have questions that try to get at that particular quality. And, and I recommend if people aren't using an interview template for all their interviews, they're, they're 10 years at least behind the time. So, so I, I strongly recommend um, implementing something like that. Yeah. And I think having been able to find people with good qualities that obviously fit your culture too. So other businesses have different cultures. They have different needs and to see how that fits also into your business. That's really, really wise to do that. Now, as far as employees, we definitely need to hire the right people. And there's so many things we need to learn there. But as far as running the business, making sure that we're making profit, making sure that we're actually not losing money, keeping inventory in control, is there any keys or any tips, uh, principles that we should know as far as finances in the business? One thing which I didn't really understand very well until fairly late in my career because of the way the car business is arranged, but is just knowing what your finances are. So one of the things about franchise businesses, and I don't know if McDonald's, you know, franchise McDonald's and restaurants and those kinds of organizations the same way, but at least in the car business, we're all franchised by manufacturers. They want to know what we're doing every month financially. So we're required to have an on-staff accountant who keeps track of uh, all the things on a long, long five long page financial statement. And it, with such level of detail, it includes even like the margins on each, each vehicle. Like, um, you know, the margin that we make on an Impreza, a new Impreza is broken out uh, compared to a new Forester, compared to a new Outback. I mean, they're very detailed. So we know at the end of every month, we have all our expenses, all of our income in one place, and we kind of know whether it's working or not, you know? And if something's broken, we have a bad month, then we can dig in and see where, where, did it, where did it go wrong? Do we have excess personnel expense or did we just lose focus on our margins and, and price our cars too low in pursuit of, of more volume or you know all the, all the things that, 
that uh, all the levers you have to push and and uh, dials you have to adjust. So I think that's really important to to understand, you know, just just where you are and what you're doing. And I'm surprised how many. It's a lot of small businesses. They have bank accounts um, with deposits in and out, but nothing to track whether the business is making money or not. And if you don't have that, you're you're really flying blind. So I guess I'd start there. That's a great point. And I know it's sad, but I'm not a numbers person. Like literally numbers go in my brain and they literally disappear. It's really irritating how that happens. Like playing golf, I'll hit two shots and then I'll hit my third one. I'm like, where am I at now? And literally, this is just how my brain works. Uh, my brother, on the other hand, he's literally just a math whiz. Um, but I need, I know that about me. And so I have to make sure I have that accounted for either having a bookkeeper or having a system that I actually make sure that in all of my businesses, things are running well. Good thing for me, I have property managers. And so for all my properties, the property managers pay for all their accounting and all that sort of, I just get the statements every month, which makes it so much easier on me. Okay. So once we are, we already have the, the hiring the, the personnel and we're, we're focusing on having the right finances, we can drill down to see where we are either losing money, where we're making money. What else do we need to know as somebody who's going to be running their own business, having employees, having inventory? What else do we should we know as a principal, like to a firm foundation so that we can make sure we're stepping forward in a right way? Yeah, I guess another way to think about this question is what are the mistakes that I've made and that I see other business owners making? And one that comes to mind, and this doesn't afflict everybody, but there's some magic middle when it comes to the amount of information you want to acquire before you make a decision. And I'll give you an example. Let me let me make it more specific. There are some people just by temperament that just want to gather information and they want to have all the data and decision informing material in front of them before they can make a decision. That's sort of on one extreme. And then on the other extreme, you get people that are kind of impulsive, you know, in, in to give, put a fine point on it. You know, I know a dealer that, you know, someone will come in to, to pitch, you know, uh, a radio ad campaign or something from a radio station and he'll just sign up on the spot without checking in with his general sales manager and saying, hey, is this, you know, do we have enough inventory to justify advertising this right now or whatever? So that's, that's kind of the other extreme. I think the, there's some happy medium and it's in the middle that you want to gather the information you can before you make a decision that's readily available. But and you want to talk to the people that are that are like right across the hallway or in our case across the showroom. And there's some reasonable amount of due diligence you want to make on a decision. But but then you need to make the decision. So I talk about in the books, I have a whole chapter on decision making. I think it's really important that you lean into decision making. You know that that the, the mistake is that I see often is that people just postpone and procrastinate instead of actually pulling the trigger. And obviously, if they're really important decisions, you know, spending millions of dollars on a new facility, you're really going to want to vet that. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that you should be casual with a decision like that. But, but something like trying an ad campaign, you know, so you sit down with your managers and you know, review the inventory situation and, you know, within... 20, 30 minutes, I think that small team of people can can hash out whether it makes sense to try a new, new radio uh, station. And then you do it for a month or, or two months or three months and you see if it works. 
And if you never see any results at all, you know, you, if you're on the showroom and I, for many years I, I was, and I'd ask everybody that came in after thanking them for visiting us, I'd say, how, how did you hear about us? And if, if not once in the three months that we're running that campaign, do I, do I hear the first person say, oh yeah, I heard that kind of crazy, crazy ad that you were running on the radio station. Then I'm like, you know what, this is probably an indication that that wasn't working too well. And then you have more data and, and you can either try another radio station or you can decide to, to use the money in some, some other way, um, in not an advertising at all. Maybe you just take it as profit or you, um, you invest it in some kind of different project, but but I think the, the point is, is that the more you can lean into decisions, make them expeditiously and thoughtfully, but not too cautiously, the, the faster your business is going to grow because you just have more opportunities to see what works and what doesn't. That's a great, great idea. And I really want to emphasize something that you brought up was talking to the people that are just across the hall from me. Like you hire people that are going to be able to run your business that hopefully are smarter than you or better at it, whatever it is that you hire them to do, they're better than you. In fact, that's how I hire anybody in my business. Either they're smarter than me in a certain position or they're better or, you know, as sales, like they better be better salesmen than me. And so that's one thing that I look for when I hire people is that they're better than me. And I turn to them. I turn to them and say, hey, I hired you to be an expert in this position. Tell me what are your thoughts? And so I think if anybody is not utilizing the people that they hire, you probably should get rid of them if they're not, you know, if, if that's the thought. It's like, well, they're not good enough. Well, then why are they there? So I love that. Now, Jeff, you've given us so much great insights into how we can have a business and be successful. Let's jump into the rapid fire round. So in the rapid fire round, the questions are short, but your answers don't have to be. First question is, out of all the insights that you give us, is there anything we might have missed? Anything else we we should know as we are running our businesses? There's something I, I talk about in the book, and I got this idea from my dad. I, I think it's really important that we we un, we run profitable businesses and and uh, winning sports teams and and all of those adventures that we're going to undertake professionally in our lives. But but the the thing my dad reminded me to do is to make sure there was always love in the model. That's his phrase. And and what he meant by that is that your life should be organized around professional and personal activities that that build people up and and serve others and and protect uh, the earth and honor the one good body that you've been given, that you don't abuse your yourself or not be gentle enough to yourself with your with your sleep habits or your nutrition or any of that, that, that there should be a lot of love built into everything that you do. And I think that you can do that in a business in so many different ways. For us, I'll, I'll give you an example I think is that I'm really proud of, that we like to include people that have been traditionally excluded from the car business. And I think it's good business because we get talent that that other dealerships overlook. Uh, to put a very fine point on it, for example, we have uh, several women technicians uh, nationwide, only about 1% of technicians are females, and, and we have several at, at Planet Subaru. And obviously, that's a benefit to us because technicians, good ones are hard to find. Well, really, any, not even the good ones, just any technician is hard to find right now. And so so that has how it benefits us. But but it benefits the people working for us because they have, they have the access to the income and the career path. I mean, being an auto technician perhaps doesn't have quite the uh, the the social shine on it that it should, but, but it's a very, very high income potential position. Uh, 
and um, very reasonable hours at, at you know at a functioning store like ours that treats its people well. So I think um, it's it's important that that we we incorporate that in our daily business activities. That it's not just about the bottom line. That that we should make sure that the the very activities of our business every day are actually supporting something beyond ourselves. So I, I think I want to I want to put a fine point on that. I think it's fantastic. In fact, that's how I try to run my businesses is being others focused. How many more people I can serve makes my life better just because I feel better, like the more people I help. But then at the same time, they're benefited as well. So that's great. Now, next question is, what's one bit of advice you would give your younger self? Other than like a lot of people say, well, just get started. Well, everybody knows to get started. We want to get started. What's one bit of advice that you would give your younger self? Could be business, could be life or anything like that. It would be beware the defects of your own virtues. And what I mean by that is that every superpower you have has a dark side. You know, it's just like a coin. It has two sides. So let's let's make this concrete. In my case, um, I was very hardworking. And one of the reasons that made me very hardworking is that I had an enormous pain threshold. So I could wake up early in the morning, the alarm would go off and be like, oh my gosh, it's so early. But I'd I'd climb out of bed and I'd go in and I'd take my bullets all day because starting a business, I mean, I, I hate to tell you, it's it's a lot of fun now owning a business that's been, you know, been built over now 23 years. But for a long time, it was a it was a real grind and it and candidly not a lot of fun. And so I'd go in every day and I'd just get beat up and I'd go home and I'd I'd be uh Somehow I'd find the energy to come in and do it the next day and the day after that. I did that working six and seven day weeks for about 10 years. The problem is, here's where I'm getting to the defects of that virtue. It's a virtue to be hardworking. But I was so good at it that I I really compromised my physical health, the health of my marriage. Uh, We're still married, my my first wife and I. There's only one, one wife. And um, I'm proud of that. But and, and the other thing is that even my psychological health had been imperiled by, by just going in and grinding it out with, without regard to, to taking care of myself and being gentle to myself. So I think everybody in your audience, there's one or maybe more qualities that, that allow them to succeed and make them really good at what they do, but it's very easy to overdo it and you need to be careful that you don't uh, over rev that engine. I think it's a great point. There's always a, uh, a side that would, if you take it to an extreme, it could be problematic. So that's a great point. Now, next question is, what is one book that you, a nonfiction book that you would recommend, could be business, life, that you would recommend other than your book, which we'll get to in just a second? Yeah, so there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by a Nobel Prize winner named uh, Danny Kahneman. And it's a thick book. It's an inch and a half thick. And it's it's not a light read, but it's worth it. And the reason why it's worth it and it made such an impact on me is it's very important for me to have very clear thinking, like to understand how my emotions are affecting my judgments and, and to be aware of all the human biases that affect us when we make decisions and reading that book opened my eyes to all the things that I was very confident about and thought I knew. And really, I was just living in a world kind of of my own making. 
So I think the analytical rigor of my thinking improved a lot after reading that book. And I think it's it's so important just to not, not only to our businesses, but also to our personal lives and our relationships with families to, to understand what's really going on in our heads. Because we can really delude ourselves into, into coming to beliefs that, that are really not founded in reality. And um, we need to avoid that and, and try to see things for what they are. And I think that book gave me the skills to do that. Terrific. I'm going to definitely have to check that one out. Now, last question is, what's one tool that you use on every day? It could be an app. It could be a piece of paper and a pencil. But something that you use every day that we should look into using? I use an old, this is going to sound really boring, but I've, I've been succeeding with this since I was a child. I just use the most basic calendar. And uh, at some point, I, it used to be written. I mean, for many years into the computer age, it was still written. I've finally switched over to an electric, electric version. But maybe this is basic to a lot of people, but I mean, everybody has a calendar, but I, I sort of live my whole day off the calendar. And I'm not saying the calendar is my, uh, is, is my master, so to speak, but it, it's my servant to the extent that that's where I put all of my commitments and my desires about what I'm going to accomplish on a particular day. So I have a, like a central resource that I go to and, and it's the rarest of occasions that I, I let someone down because I'm late for a meeting that I didn't realize I had or, or I neglect to, to honor a promise that I made to provide, you know, a document or, or something that they needed by the date date that I told them I was going to give that, that thing to them. And, and I think a lot of people just rely on their memory or, or, um, they, they have a calendar, but they don't put everything on it. And for me, it's, it's a magical tool. I completely agree. I used to be one that just remembered everything because I didn't have a lot of stuff, you know, going through college and stuff. I didn't have a lot, but I could remember it. I have a decent memory. And when it came down to, you know, starting doing business and stuff, I'm like, I better write things down because <laughs> things start to slip through the cracks. And Jeff, you give us lots of great advice. Now, somebody's going to want to reach out. They want to check out your book. Talk to us about how we can find you, how we can find your book, and even if we can, reach out to you. Yeah, sure. I love to hear from readers and listeners at uh, jeffmorrill.com, M-O-R-R-I-L-L.com. And uh, there's a way to communicate with me there. There's a lot of other resources. I mentioned there's uh, tools that we use in our businesses every day that I wanted to share with other business owners. There are some bonus chapters that the publisher couldn't fit in the book. And if someone wants to get the book profit-wise, how to make more money in business by doing the right thing, then there's a link there to do it too. That's great. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the show, giving us great, great wisdom. I really appreciate it. Today's episode has been brought to you by the Real Estate Wealth Builders Membership. That's the membership that I founded teaching people how to quit their J-O-B by investing in real estate rental properties. Now, Real Estate Wealth Builders is your place to learn how to invest in real estate with five different masterclass courses group coaching with me and a private student community where we all work together, all the tools and the discounts, all the resources and everything that you need to quit your J-O-B by investing in real estate. Now, I do want to show you how to do this completely for free. If you want to learn about investing in real estate for free, I want to get you my free real estate investing course. Go to masterpassiveincome.com forward slash free course. It'll be in the description, masterpassiveincome.com forward slash free course. You can see how you can quit your job, that J-O-B, by investing in real estate. I'll show you how to find properties, how to use other people's money to buy properties, and how to scale the business to be successfully unemployed just like I did. Also, if you got anything out of the show, 
Share it with just one person. Share it with just one person so that they can see the light that it is so much better to not work a job, be successful, unemployed, and be your own boss. All right, guys, this is it for today's show. I will see you next week. See ya. (laughs) 